welcome. Happy Sunday. Uh, it's good to have you guys here. Uh, we have been doing a series this year, I guess on and off, uh, with, with the question, what would Jesus ask you? And uh, at times we might think like, what gives Jesus authority to speak at all into our lives? Why, why should we bother to listen to him? Some of us might be doubting at times, all of us do, whether we should care if he asks us a question or whether his advice is worthy to be followed, whether we should just maybe seek truth and wisdom through a conglomeration of historical figures and quotes. And we just try to navigate life through our own wisdom, leaning on our own understanding. And we often fall back to that default state, even though many of us are followers of Jesus. Many of us have come to the conclusion that he's worthy of following but I find that I wake up every morning back into the normal routine of my own agenda, my own plans, my own wisdom that I lean upon. And so we need to consider, right, why should his voice be considered greater than any others, right? I can't just simply figure out my life on my own, right? We'd want to just say, hey, it's my life, right? I've only got one of these. Why not, why not just live it for me? Why not live it trying to optimize my joy, my pleasure, my happiness, building my own kingdom for myself, right? Why not do that? And the reason is, is that Jesus does know what he's talking about, all right? And that's one of the things we're going to discover today. We're going to look at today as he asks this question that I pulled from uh, John chapter 9, verse 35. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? All right. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And as far as uh, this series is concerned, right, I'm absolutely taking some of these questions out of context, which is a dangerous thing to do. But I want to point out that the human hearts uh, continue to be the same as they always have been. We continue to frequently rebel against God and, and try to seek after our own pleasure, our own profit, right? But, but yet, God, who is never changing, he's always the same, yesterday, today, and forever, he may ask us at times these same questions that he had asked other people during his earthly ministry. And so Jesus asks this question, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he's referring to himself. And you might think at first, like, oh, Son of Man, that sounds like, is he just claiming that he's a human being? Is he simply claiming that he's a son of Adam? Right? That he's, he's merely human. And see, right? Some might even say, see, Jesus didn't say that he was God. He's, he's the son of man. He's just a human being. He's a good teacher. He's a rabbi. He's maybe a prophet, is what some people might place him in as far as categories. Yet what's interesting is this phrase, son of man, that's not the meaning of the phrase. It's the most frequent title that Jesus refers to himself with throughout the scriptures. But it doesn't imply that he was merely a man. It, it, it turns out that that phrase, calling himself the son of man, uh, uh, references his deity in an even greater way than when he's referred to as the son of God, which is kind of like a weird counterintuitive uh, interpretation. But yet it's the case. And so when Jesus refers to the son of man, he's referring to this character in this passage in Daniel chapter 7. And so when he asks the question, do you believe in the Son of Man, this is the person he's referring to. And when he says that he is the Son of Man, this is the identity that he is claiming for himself rightly. Okay, and so this is what Daniel 7.13 says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. All right, and when Jesus says the Son of Man, he's referring to this passage. And this individual was one that, that, as far as Daniel could tell, appears human, seems to be like a human being. But there's more to this character, and this is what he says. And he came to the Ancient of Days. All right, that is Jehovah God. And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so this son of man character is this one who is like a son of man. He appears to be a human being, and yet he's given dominion and authority and a kingdom over all of God's creation. 
He's, he's given rule that will never end, dominion that will never cease, a kingdom that will never fail. It is an eternally existing kingdom that will not somehow change hands to another reigning king. It is his forever and ever. And so Daniel has this vision of this son of man who receives this kingdom, that, that if one kingdom matters throughout eternity, it's this one. All other kingdoms, all other kings, all of other governments will submit to his authority. Everything else in all of creation, all life, is pointed towards this individual and made for his purposes. And I'll justify that claim a little bit towards the end. And so what's interesting here is when it comes to this kingdom, this is the one that matters. All other kingdoms will cease. All other kings, they are not the ones that we should be desiring to please, right? We should not be seeking uh, to have the praise of lesser kings. Whether, whether we see ourselves as the king of our own kingdom or whether we are people pleasers trying to get praise from other individuals who in reality, their lives are but a vapor and a dust just like ours, right? Their opinions will expire, Right? Our own independent thoughts are not what are going to remain true forever. But what this king, what this son of man figure says will remain forever. What he declares is true is forever true. This individual is not just on the right side of history. He is on the right side of eternity. And all history is leading up towards his kingdom in which he makes all things right in which he brings true justice, perfect justice to the world. He is the king, and we should bend our lives and our knees towards him. Right? All of our thoughts and intents should be directed towards how can I invest myself in this kingdom. We should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, is what Jesus said. Or as Paul says, whether we live or we die, we aim to please him. It is this king that we seek to please and not ourselves. If we invest our lives in lesser kings and lesser kingdoms, those things will fade away. Jesus said if we live for this world, right, this is the place in which moth and rust corrodes and thieves steal. But if we invest in his kingdom, it will always remain. Any reward that is found there will be preserved eternally and never lost, right? We should be living in light of this coming kingdom. This moment hasn't fully been revealed to us yet. It has partially, however, in which this king is reigning, right? This king is the only king whose glory and approval we should seek because all others will be lost. And so now I want to fast forward to this moment where Jesus asks this question, do you believe in the son of man? And it's found in John chapter 9, and I've got some verses on the papers there, and it jumps around. You can go back and read the story in full detail on your own. But it's this moment in which this blind man encounters Jesus. He listens to Jesus. He follows Jesus' instructions and is even healed by Jesus all while not fully knowing who Jesus is. He has this encounter with Jesus, but yet doesn't fully understand this individual he's interacting with. And along the way, he has uh, either wrong or partial, right, assumptions about this man's identity. And so this man is healed. He's able to see after being born blind, and he ends up being interrogated by the Pharisees, the, the leaders of the synagogues. And they are not interested in figuring out or determining truth. They are interested in, in ascribing guilt. So when it comes to the identity of this man... They don't actually care. They've already made up their minds as to who he isn't. And anyone who would contradict them, right, they've already judged. And so they're not interested in truth. They're interested in ascribing guilt. But this man, this is what this is, they ask him, all right? And so they ask him, how, how were you healed? Verse 11, the man called Jesus, all right? He's a man, right, in his first uh, assessment, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I, I don't know. I don't even know where this guy is anymore. Like I was blind when I was hanging out with him. I went and washed and now I see, but I don't know where to find him. 
right? And, and so right now, all he knows is this was a man. Verse 15. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. And, and he's like, I, I just told you, but okay. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said there ends up being a disagreement amongst them. Some of them said this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. All right, that they had determined that because Jesus did not keep tacked on man-made traditions to the Sabbath day, the law that God had given, that he doesn't fit in their category and therefore he's not from God, therefore he is a sinner. All right, so they'd already made up their minds. Surely this man can't be from God. But others among the group, even amongst those leaders, said, well, I'm, we're, we're kind of stuck here because how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Right? They're at least starting to like try to consider, well, I don't think that category fits anymore. We don't think he's the Christ, but something's going on here more than our initial assumption that this man is just some blasphemer. Okay? And there was a division among them. Verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And so, okay, what category do you place Jesus in? And the man said, he's a prophet. And so he partially comes to an understanding who Jesus is. He still thinks Jesus is just a man. And he's like, well, I think he's, he's at least speaking for God, right? He would have had some categories from the Old Testament in which he saw God work through imperfect people, right, to do miracles and signs at times. The prophets of God in the Old Testament. And he's like, okay, well, he just did this. And so, so he's more than a man, or he's more than just an average man. He's, he's one that seems to be representing God. He's speaking for God. He's doing God's work. I think he's a prophet. They end up uh, uh, finding this individual's parents because now they're starting to wonder, like, maybe this isn't even the same blind guy that we knew from town. Maybe he's, he's an imposter. He's a decoy. Maybe this is all a hoax. All right. And so they find his parents. Verse 20. So I skipped some. His parents said, we know not, uh, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed. Okay, so they're not interested in discovering what's true. They're not seeking truth in this moment. They've already concluded, they already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents had said, he is of age, ask him. And so once again, they, they have concluded that Jesus is not the Christ, not the Messiah. Some of them think that he's a sinner and that nothing that Jesus said should be trusted. All right, and, and to a degree, like there's appropriate healthy skepticism uh, when encountering people that claim to be speaking for God. All right, Jesus warns us of false prophets. The Bible warns us of false teachers, that we should test even all of the spirits. If, if we had a vision and something from the unseen realm would to appear to us and declare something to us, we should test exactly what is being said by that, that being. Okay, we don't just, just blindly believe whatever's told us. So like partly they're, they're being cautious, but they're being more than cautious, right? They, elsewhere we identify that the Pharisees' motives are those of jealousy of Jesus and are of pride and of selfishness and all of these other things. They, they, they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ and they view him as competition. So let's see, 24. For the second time, they now called the blind man and said to him, give glory to God because we know that this man is a sinner. All right, just, just don't say it was Jesus that did it. Just say that God did it. Okay, like, you know, trying to water down the implication of the claim. Don't give credit to this Jesus character. He's a man. He's a sinner, in fact. Give glory to God. Verse 25, he said, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so I want to point out, like, uh, all of us that come to Jesus, we come through a variety of different ways. You might not have come to Jesus because of uh, analysis of the scriptures and determining what prophecies this Messiah Jesus fulfilled. It, you might not have come to Jesus because of the textual criticism of the gospel accounts and determining their historicity. 
You might not have come to Jesus by analyzing the extra biblical texts that were written at the time of Christ that corroborate the testimony found in the New Testament. Right? You might not have come to Jesus because of thoroughly examining the evidence. And that's okay. Some people come that way. Right? C.S. Lewis said of himself, like, I'm the most reluctant convert in all of England. He didn't want to be a follower of Jesus, but he realized it was true, and so he became one. All right? But others of us are like this blind man. He's like, I, I couldn't even tell you whether or not Jesus was perfect. I couldn't tell you if Jesus was a sinner. I couldn't tell you if Jesus is a prophet or not. All I know is that I was born blind and now I see. And this man did it. And so sometimes we come to Jesus, we become followers of Jesus just because you encounter him. And I don't want you to think less of yourself because of that. That is a testimony that you can be proud of, that you can share with others, that you've encountered and experienced something that transformed and changed your life. So you don't have to, you know, if someone like is like, well, yeah, you just believed it because you were raised in it. It's like, no. Like some people, yes, that is the case. That they, they were exposed to the truth of God's word and faith grew in them as they heard God's word. That does happen to some, right? But others, they, they come through from different avenues. And as we, we sang in the song a moment ago, right? People from every tribe and tongue and nation, all peoples are gonna be coming to Jesus from their variety of backgrounds. And so you can be excited if your testimony is as simple as this man's. Dude did a miracle in my life. That's good enough. That glorifies God. And you can tell other people about it. And that testimony will reach some more than, you know, here's multiple tomes, you know, as far as the credibility of the scriptures as to why you should believe this. Some people, they're not interested in that. And they will be reached by the simple testimony of this man. So verse 26, they said, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Right? And so I can't tell if this is like a bit of a dig or if he's just like being like, hey, you know, the wise thing for you to do would be to become his disciples right now. Right? That seems to be the logical conclusion. Right? And so they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes. And so this man, notice, he does identify, all right, based off of this one encounter with Jesus, I didn't even see him. I was blind at the time, but because of what he did in my life, I've already decided that he's a prophet and I've decided that I am his disciple. I don't have this guy fully figured out, but I'm going to follow him. He is my rabbi. He is my teacher. I am his apprentice. I want to become more like this person, right? He had sufficient evidence to, to walk that life. He's like, I'm going to follow this man. And he's even inviting other people to do the same. All right. Sometimes that's as simple as it is, right? This man didn't have perfect theology. Right? He didn't have even the belief whether or not Jesus was a perfect, sinless individual. But he's like, I know enough that I'm going I'm to start following him and I'll find out more along the way. And they ended up saying, right, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes. And so think about this. Like, do, do we believe that God has spoken to Christ? That God has spoken through Christ? Do we believe we know where Jesus came from? Because Jesus identified it, right? He says, I and the Father are one. He says that I am from above and you are from below. Like he identifies the fact that he had stepped down from heaven out of his kingdom in order to save and redeem humanity. Jesus believed these things about himself. Do we with confidence believe the same things? Right? I know sometimes like we've like maybe checked the box or we've come to that conclusion, but then we go on living as though like, our opinions are more significant or our feelings and our desires are more important than the things that Jesus says, which if we were to check the box, we would have said, well, no, God is speaking through Jesus. Or we might even say Jesus is God himself speaking. But yet sometimes when it comes to his word and ours, we're kind of like, well, I really like mine better. <laughs> you know, like I'm just going to go this way, uh, do my thing. Right. But do we believe that God has spoken through Christ just like they believe that God had spoken to Moses. 
Verse 30, the man answered, why is this an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so this man, he, uh, he's now, with all of these if-then statements and logic, he's trying to figure out who is this Jesus character. And he's saying, like, all of these conditional statements and the contrapositives of them. And he's, he's like, okay, like, if this man were not of God, he couldn't do anything. God wouldn't even listen to his prayers if he was a sinner. But he's like, but surely this man did a miracle, right? And if, if this man is one who were not from God, he couldn't do a single thing. And yet it's obvious that God has done something mighty through him, right? And so he, he's processing and figuring out and logically like kind of painting himself into this corner of like the identity of Jesus is getting narrower and narrower. And I think I'm coming to the conclusion of who he is. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. And then verse 35, notice this. This man has made great progress in his discovery of who Jesus is, right? Like he's come to all sorts of conclusions in that single day. And he's like, he's already changed who he believes speaks the truth and who he's going to follow with his life. And yet Jesus knows that this man is incomplete in his conclusion. All right. Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. And so what's interesting here is that Jesus prioritizes this man's belief in the Son of Man, right? Jesus seeks out this individual again, right? Yes, Jesus was interested in healing his blindness, but more so Jesus is now like hunting this guy down to further build on his faith, right? He didn't just be like, all right, you graduated, good luck, you know, enjoy your life. Like, no, Jesus cares about this man and us coming to the conclusion that he is the son of man, this character we read about in Daniel 7, right? Jesus didn't want to leave this man with a partial understanding of who he was. And so what's interesting here is, right, uh, this man didn't even know the idea of the son of man, never mind that Jesus was the son of man. And yet Jesus meets him and heals him all prior to this belief. Jesus seeks this man out to bring him to the point of this belief because it is significant, because it is important. And Jesus wants you and I to come to this conclusion as well. He does not want us to remain in a partial understanding of who he is, that he is simply a man or that he is a prophet or that he is just, you know, someone that God is working through. He's a good teacher. He's a rabbi, right? He wants us to come to the conclusion that he is the son of man. Do you believe in the son of man? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And so this man does come to the conclusion that Jesus is this figure. And he worships Jesus. And what's interesting is, uh, right, if falsely concluded, if Jesus was not this individual, he's not deserving of worship. And that would be a blasphemous act. It would be something that would uh, be against God's will and wishes. All right, that, that we should not worship anyone else other than God. It breaks the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. All right, that even in, in the book of Revelation, when the apostle John has this vision of angels appearing to him who have an infinitesimal amount, a fractional amount of the glory that God has, he falls down and starts worshiping these angels. And the angels are like, you can't do this. Like, get up. Like, don't worship me. Like, I am no one to be worshiped. Right? That act is reserved only for God. And yet Jesus in this moment and other instances in the New Testament is worshipped and he receives that worship. He doesn't correct them. And that worship even takes place in a public space and, and he doesn't correct it. He receives this man's worship and the worship of others. 
Right? So not only is the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of Man, do you believe that Jesus is worthy of worship? That we would use our hearts and our voices and our lives to worship Him in everything that we do. Do we believe that about Jesus? This blind man did. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him, all right, so like this man's worshiping Jesus, and they're seeing this happen. Okay, but what's interesting is some of them are still investigating. And they kind of ask this question, are we also blind, Jesus? Like, Jesus, you realize how offensive that is to say? 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. And so this blind man, he encounters Jesus, he listens to Jesus, he follows the instruction of Jesus, and he concludes all of these things about Jesus. He's healed by Jesus prior to to coming to the conclusion that he's the Son of Man. And I want to point out, like, you and I, we have similar experiences to this individual, right? Like, we have partial understanding of Jesus at times, and we grow in our understanding of who God is throughout the rest of our lives. All right, that we can be disciples of Jesus and yet not fully appreciate every facet of his beauty. We might not fully appreciate the depths of the manifold wisdom of God. And that's okay, right? God doesn't, upon belief, download everything from scripture and reality into our brains like it's the movie The Matrix, right? Like, Like God lets us learn and grow. And that's a good thing. And he has grace for that. Okay, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not something to be ashamed of when it's like, you know, like, I don't even know whether this guy's a sinner or not. I just know that he healed me. Like, you can start there and begin to grow. Like, don't remain there is the point. Jesus didn't want him to remain there. He sought him out to bring him to the point of truth. And so we don't always recognize fully who Jesus is, or even when we believe it, right, it somehow, like, slips to our subconscious, and then we just go back to living for ourselves, and we act as though Jesus is not reigning supreme, the king of all the universe for all eternity, right? We act differently because we're so used to the world that we live in and the stimulus we get from our senses and our own logic and thinking and reasoning and wisdom, right? We fall back into just acting differently, but we can grow. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 3. He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, which in the previous verse he said, were these individuals who twisted scripture to their own destruction, right? Take care that you're not carried away with the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability. But, but what? Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The Christian walk is, is one in which we don't have it all figured out. And that's, that's okay. Like we begin walking, we begin following, we begin as his disciples, and over time we grow in the knowledge of who he is. That's by God's design, all right, that we get to discover more and more about him through his word, through the scriptures, right, through what he reveals to us, and that is a good and God-glorifying thing. But we should not be content to remain, right? Just because, like, you might be able to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, That doesn't mean you graduate and you stop growing. It doesn't mean you cease to participate in the family of God or cease to read the scriptures and continue to learn, right? We continue to seek his kingdom and his will. We continue to read the word of God because we want to glorify him both now in this life and for all of eternity. There's some other moments that I want to rush through as far as Jesus asking similar questions, even of those who were closest to him during his years of ministry. In John 14, 9, this is at the Last Supper, Jesus said uh, to Philip, who had asked him a question, he's like, Jesus, it would be good for us. It'd be good enough. Like, as far as if you want to really prove who you are, just show us God. You know, that, that's what we really would like. And Jesus says this, have I been with you so long and you do still not know me? You still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then here's a question. Imagine if Jesus was asking this of us, even after maybe we've been following him for three years like they did. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? 
right? Like, do we sometimes not recognize the full weight and significance of the things that Jesus did and the words that he speaks? Do we just put him in a category of he was just a, a, you know, a decent carpenter and a good teacher? He was just some poor guy who hung around, you know, Jerusalem for 2000, you know, 2000 years ago. And like, it's just kind of interesting. Like we got some of his life story biography here. Like what, what category do we put him in? Do we recognize that Jesus and the Father are one? That he is in the Father and the Father is in me? He says this, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. All right, so, so he's, he's asking this question. Do you, do you not believe that God is in the flesh dwelling among you right now, Philip? Do you not recognize that Jesus is distinct and different from all the rest of humanity? Yes, he was a man. He is like a son of man, but he is more than that. He is the fullness of God dwelling in him bodily. It is God himself on this earth redeeming humanity back to himself. Jesus is different from other teachers and different from other prophets of God. He is God himself dwelling among us. And so do we think less of Jesus than he actually is? Do we recognize that what he speaks is literally the words of the Father? Do we give appropriate weight to his words? And Jesus says this, he's like, listen, like if you don't believe me, believe at least the works that I do. Right? He's like, believe the evidence. Right? The, the, God is pleased by faith, it says in Hebrews 11. Okay, but but God is faith just means trusting God. It's not this like blind trust in who God is. Jesus believed in evidence and he believed the evidence was sufficient to trust him and believe that God was the one who was working in and through Jesus on this earth. He's like, at least believe the works. Right. I've got the verse Acts 10, 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. Because God was with him. All right? Like, the, like, this is something that you can consider, just like the blind man. He had one encounter with Jesus, and the evidence was sufficient for him to follow him with his life. And eventually conclude that he's this son of man figure. Okay? And so even if, right, you came to Christ just through your own encounter and experience with him, or if you came to him as a result of studying the evidence, either results are things that can continue to bolster our faith in who he is. All right, like we might already have come to the conclusion that he's the son of man. But we can continue to study and grow in our knowledge of who he is as he works in our lives and works through the scriptures that we can believe on account of the works. Or in John 16, later on at the the Last Supper, he says, uh, let's see, who's talking here? I forget which disciple it is. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered or asked them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And so what's interesting is, right, Jesus asked this question. He's like, oh, you're just, you're just finally coming to the point of belief. These people that have seen him do all sorts of things throughout his ministry and heard all of his teachings, right? Do you now believe, right? And we slip sometimes into that category where we're like, okay, like, I, I, you know, some days you might feel more confident in your faith in God and other, um, other times it's like you have moments of doubt and that's okay. But the disciples, right, eventually come to the conclusion, like, we believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And they actually even came to the conclusion, and I plan on next week looking into this, they said, we know that you know everything and you don't need anyone to question you. That, that Jesus isn't surprised by, you know, quarter two financial reports. Right? Jesus doesn't need like a, a council around him to be like, actually, Jesus, I know you were planning on this, but have you considered? Right? Like he doesn't need our input or our wisdom. Jesus doesn't need anyone to question him. All right? It, no new information is coming to him. He knows everything. And what he shares with us is truth, right? That he is one that is worthy of our belief, right? Do we, do we believe that, right? Do we hold his words with such high regard that we believe the same thing? 
Or uh, after the Last Supper, after Jesus is betrayed by Judas and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and this, this group shows up to arrest him, Peter gets angry and he tries chopping a guy's head off with his sword. Verse 52 in Matthew 26, Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then he asks this question, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Right? Do you somehow think less of me than this? Like, Peter, you've been hanging out with me. You've concluded that I am the Christ, the Son of God. Do you really think I need your help right now? Do you really think, you know, some dull sword in the hands of a skilled, uh, un unskilled swordsman, this, you know, fisherman, is really going to solve my problem right now? He's like, you really think your strength and your insight that you determined that this scenario was not God's will, that you were going to interject your own will in this moment? He's like, do you think that I'm not in control right now completely? Right? And, and so he asks Peter this question to consider, right? Like, do you think that God is powerful? Do you think God knew that this was going to happen? Do you think God is momentarily allowing evil to appear to triumph for a greater good and for his glory? Right? Like, and so it gives Peter like this kind of like moment to, to reflect, right? Because sometimes in Peter's case, right, Jesus is asking him, like, based on his actions, it appears as though you don't think that's true, even though Peter would have thought it was. All right? But like, Jesus might ask us the same thing. Do we believe? that he is powerful, that he has authority over this world and the unseen realm for all of eternity? Or do we think he somehow needs us to, to rescue the situation that we're in? That he needs us and our wisdom to solve these problems? Right? Jesus is in control. He is powerful and he is able. Right? And Peter considered what was happening in that moment to be so bad it couldn't possibly be God's will. And we'll at times encounter moments in our lives where we are equally perplexed, but we don't need to despair. God is in control. And yet, I don't want us to suggest somehow that, that God doesn't ever call us to act. Right? It, I, he's not calling us to a point of passivity where it's like, oh, God's so good, he's got it figured out, I'm just going to eat hot dogs all day. Like, no, no, he wants us to, to care for the poor and the needy, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. He wants us to participate in prayer. He wants us to share the gospel, the good news of his kingdom. So I'm not arguing for passivity because God is in control. I'm calling, yes, at times we do participate as God invites us to co-labor with him in his work, in his kingdom. And yet in this moment, it seemed that Peter believed that God needed him to act. It was his own idea, even though Jesus multiple times had told him, this is going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed in the hands of wicked men. They're going to kill me and I'll rise again. But like Peter was like, no, that's not going to happen to you, Lord. And then he, in that moment of tension, he acts demanding his own way, his own will. But Acts 17, verse 25, it says, God is, uh, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay, God didn't need Peter's help in that moment. Jesus was in control, and he could have spoken a word, and more than 12 legions of angels would have shown up to solve that problem. All right, so sometimes he wants, yes, he wants us to participate, but he doesn't actually need us to, which is weird. God wants us to cooperate and participate with him as his children. He doesn't need anything we have to offer because everything we have is what he's given us, but yet he invites us to be a part of his kingdom, to, to work with us and through us by his spirit, through his word being spoken. And so it's like this kind of interesting paradox, like he doesn't need anything from us, but he chooses to let us, he wants to work with us. Uh, when Jesus is on trial afterwards, they end up asking him the question. Verse 63, uh, Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And what's interesting is in that moment, Jesus is the living God. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Right? He is the Son of God. 
But yet Jesus doesn't cling on to the Son of God language. He actually swaps the language in his response. Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so more directly, he quotes from Daniel chapter 7. And the high priest, as a Bible scholar, knows exactly what he's saying. Right? He says this. Then uh, the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You You have now heard his blasphemy. He's like, we've got the evidence we need. This guy believes he is the authority and the power of God, that he is God himself. And so let's put him to death. He knew what Jesus meant when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. And we can too. We can have confidence. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Right? The high priest, he, he recognized that if falsely claimed, someone claimed to be the Son of Man, that in that context, it would be blasphemy. It would be sacrilegious for someone to falsely claim that title for themselves. Right? He believed that Jesus was wrong in that conclusion. What's interesting is the high priest considered this statement to be highly offensive and he was defending the glory of God in his own mind. At this moment in time in our lives, we likely don't find it very offensive. We may be very comfortable with the idea of Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man, receiving his kingdom. Yet what's interesting is you and I, we don't often find it to be potent or powerful. We don't consider the significance of that claim at all times. We often have a diminished view of Jesus in our minds. We often act as though it isn't true. Right? The high priest considered this claim in its full significance and that Jesus was deserving to be put to death because of the significance of that claim. And we often accept the claim, yet we don't consider it all that significant or important. And we often don't consider Jesus worthy of the glory that he is due. Yet if this is true, Jesus is fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy. His kingdom is being given to him and that he is the king that reigns supreme for all time. We see this in Acts chapter 7 after the resurrection when uh, Stephen is being martyred. And in the moment of his death, he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Right? That's, That's further evidence that Jesus did receive his kingdom in this way. Or in the book of Revelation, when John has these visions in Revelation chapter 1, he says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, right? He's recognizing Jesus is not some poor carpenter anymore. We don't get to keep him in that category, even though it makes us feel safer. Even though it makes our words and our thoughts and our opinions feel more important than what he might have espoused 2,000 years ago. Right? We don't get you to just simply say, well, like, well, those were, you know, maybe it was true for his time, but not anymore. Those, that's just an old way of thinking. It doesn't, re- doesn't apply anymore. No. He is reigning supreme for all eternity, and his kingdom will have no end. The things that he declared as will, true will remain true forever. It's every other kingdom, every other king, every other person, every other tribe, tongue, and nation that will submit to his authority for the rest of eternity. Right? He is the ruler of the kings on the earth. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Right? And so like this is incredible. Jesus has all of this authority and yet he loves people like us. That's insane. Right? He knows everything that's screwed up about us. And yet he still loves us. Right? Sometimes we can kind of convince people to like us when they don't know everything about us. Right? And it's almost a fearful thought like, Man, if someone knew everything about me, they wouldn't love me anymore. They wouldn't like me. Right? But God fully loves and fully knows. God knows everything about your past. He knows the things that you'll be disappointed in yourself in the future. And he's like, I still love you. I still died for you. I still forgive you. Verse 6, And made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, and so notice this language from Daniel 7. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then Jesus speaks, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, and so Jesus remains to, uh, as the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
In verse 17, it says, When I saw him, that is the one like a son of man, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. So notice this about Jesus and his identity as he is right now. Jesus is the living one, the firstborn of the dead, alive forevermore. His death, burial, and resurrection accomplish something in which he has the keys to death itself. Right? He has the keys of the grave. He has full authority over all life and all death. In Acts 2.23, Peter eventually comes to the conclusion about God's will and he identifies his authority over death. Right? He said this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Right? Peter eventually realizes, like, you know what? I was wrong in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was definitely God's plan. God definitely knew all of this was going to happen. This was God's perfect plan. It seemed like utter evil that God would allow it. Like, how could God ever let this happen? He's like, but God allowed wicked men to kill the one who is the fullness of life. Right? God allowed that. He allowed what appeared to be awful and evil and wicked to happen for our good and his glory. All right? And it didn't make sense to Peter then, but he's like, nope, definitely God's plan. Guys, I was wrong. And God raised him up, and it wasn't possible for death to hold Jesus back. It could not stop him because he is full of life. So, Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is alive forevermore. It even identifies this character who is the first and the last in the Old Testament, Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. That when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, when Jesus says, I am the first and the last, he is identifying himself as equivalent to Jehovah God. And this actually, these two passages from Revelation 1 as well as 21, and then Isaiah 44, becomes a bit of a conundrum for Jehovah's Witnesses. Because if Jehovah's the first and the last, and Jesus is the first and the last, you can't have two people who are first. You can't have two people who are the last. It's because they're the same person. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is both God and man. Let's see, I'm going to run through Colossians 1 and Philippians just for us to be soaked in the reality of who Jesus is before we praise God here. There's a cool heron up there. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All kingdoms, all history, all creation, all life was not only made by him, permitted by him, but made for him. It is all directing towards him and for his purposes. All right, verse 17, and he is before all things and in in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that is to be surpassing of all others. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus was fully God and God was pleased to dwell in him. And in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, God redeemed humanity back to himself. He wasn't just some good teacher. He wasn't just some wise prophet. He was God himself redeeming humanity. His death was significant. Or Philippians 2, he, uh, Paul reflects on similar ideas. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is, in, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider or count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is fully God, right? He is fully God. And yet he was born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. He even experienced death on a cross. But 
he doesn't stop there. Right? We shouldn't treat Jesus as though he was just this uh, humble servant. We shouldn't treat Jesus like he's meant to serve us because he served. We shouldn't treat Jesus like a criminal because he died the death of a criminal on the cross. Right? We shouldn't treat Jesus this way. Uh, we should treat Jesus as king. He is not merely a man who came to serve. He is king. Verse 9, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, everyone should speak, confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus is presently glorified. All of heaven, all of earth, Every part of creation is made for him and for his purposes. This is who Jesus is right now, and his kingdom will not end. This is the individual that we pray to. This is the individual who rescued and redeemed us, who saved us. This is the individual who <coughs> prepares a place for us that where he is, we may be also. Like, do we believe this? Do we believe in the Son of Man? When we pray, do we pray fervently with faith, like it said in James 5 last week, recognizing that this is the person who is powerful and has authority to call down as he wishes more than 12 legions of angels. Do we recognize and give full weight to his word and the truth revealed and preserved in the scriptures, that when he speaks wisdom to us, that we can live according to God's wisdom and not the wisdom of this world or leaning on our own understanding? Do we believe in the Son of Man? Do we believe that Jesus truly reigns as King? Do we live as though He is worthy of our praise, of our lives, of all of our pursuits, that we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness? Right? It's a good thing that we remind ourselves of who He is because it will change how we think and how we act in this world. It will change how we experience suffering. We'll be able to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, just as Jesus did when he went through his suffering. Right? It changes the way we live. We won't be pleasers of men. We'll be willing to live our lives even when everyone else would in some way be disappointed in us or judge us as wrong if we would choose to live according to this king. That we would live for the audience of one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for all that you've done. I thank you, God, that your words are powerful. They are the words of truth and life. That they have the ability to shape us and to, to change us. That, that your words do not return void. That when they penetrate our hearts as we receive your words, that, Lord, they will bear much fruit. I pray, God, that you would be at work in your people. That you would be glorified in us. That, Lord, we would live mindful of who you are. Lord, forgive us of all the times we fail to hold you rightly in our minds, to, to accurately represent you, to glorify you, to magnify you for who you are. Forgive us, Lord, for when we build our own kingdoms and live for ourselves. Lord, we desire to see your name glorified, to see your name hallowed, to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we invite you to start with us. Let your will be done in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.